You can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're at as we continue, as I mentioned earlier, in our Easter series. And I don't want to, to box myself in. I, I hope you grabbed an outline on your way in because that'll be our guide through uh, the Word this morning. And the answer will be on the screen behind me. But even if you didn't, just please feel free to take notes. But like I said, I, I don't want to box myself in, but I am tempted to kind of make this uh, this this format for our Easter series. We did the same format last year where we took the two Sundays leading up to Easter and then obviously Easter Sunday and the Sunday after. I'm tempted to make that somewhat of a a liturgical calendar for us to block off these four weeks to intently prepare our hearts for the first two weeks uh, for Resurrection Sunday and then obviously celebrate Resurrection Sunday and then consider the ongoing implications of Resurrection Sunday every year. Uh, because, again, this rhythm has just been so impactful for me, even just the last two weeks. Um, and this rhythm is to remind ourselves of the suffering and afflictions of Christ in leading up to the resurrection. Particularly, that's what this morning's sermon is for. And I posit that there is a great deal that the believer can glean from the afflictions of Christ. I posit that because that's what Scripture shows us, and we'll see that clearly this morning, that the afflictions of Christ are one of the chief oppositions to the prosperity gospel movement and that they are an anchor for our souls. If you do not feel that there is a growing animosity toward those who will not bow the knee to the gospel of culture, then look no further than what we saw take place just this last Monday in Nashville. As we saw six lives lost, three children around the age of nine and three teachers at the hands of a gunman that seemingly targeted the school specifically because of its Christian values and their clash with her own LGBTQ ideology. And were it not for the heroic actions of the Nashville police and the sheriff's department, things could have been much worse. And so still we ask in situations like that, when presented time and time again with the ugly sinfulness and brokenness of this world and the results of sin, we ask, why? Why suffering? Why the loss? Why the antithetical New Age gospel of self-absorption? Why do we see so much hurt and chaos constantly? I believe that in times like this, and indeed in any time, we need answers for suffering, for hurt, for loss, and pain, that we need look no further than the sufferings of Christ for answers as to how God can work in the midst of even the most intense suffering. And that is exactly where this morning's text points us. I'll ask you to stand one more time again in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read our text for this morning, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word, we ask that you would bless this time, bless the reading of your word, bless the study of your word. God, help us as your church here at Southside to see the necessity and the purpose that you have in the midst of suffering of this world, this, the paradoxical things that we think about it, how could suffering be purposeful and glorifying to you? Help us to see that truth in your word and then help us to live out that reality, rejoicing in our sufferings, knowing that you are glorified in all and through all. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So, roughly, uh, roughly a year after writing 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul pins what is our letter of 2 Corinthians while in Macedonia. So that would be somewhere around A.D. 55 to 56, somewhere in there. So about a year later, he would find himself in Corinth, continuing to address some of the Corinthian issues, writing the letter of Romans. So from reading into the context clues of First and Second Corinthians, we can tell that these letters that we have were likely not the only letters written by Paul to the church in Corinth. So from what we can tell, our letters of First and Second Corinthians are actually the second and fourth letters written by Paul to the church in Corinth. So if you, if you at first thought that the church in Corinth had problems, now maybe you think even more so, if you did not already know that, right? Because it took four letters and a personal visit to address some of the issues that he repeatedly addresses in the church in Corinth. So in the letter to 2 Corinthians... Just as in all of Paul's writing, there's a central focus and a theme. The clear and focused theme of 2 Corinthians is the relationship between Paul's suffering, his own personal suffering, and the power of the Spirit at work in Paul's apostolic life and ministry. You see, those who had opposed Paul found their way into the church at Corinth and were actively questioning Paul's authority with what he taught. 
And they were questioning his authority simply on the basis that he suffered too much to be a true apostle of the risen Christ and filled with his spirit. And so that contextualizes completely everything that we just read in our text for today. And I want us to see that, how Paul points to his own personal suffering and the corporate suffering of the church as identifiers of who we are in Christ. And as we shall see, Paul's argument is that all suffering is totally purposeful for making the glory of the gospel known in the world. So, now before we can know the true significance of our text for today, we start with that interesting statement. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Before we can know the significance of everything else that we just read, we need to know a few things. Number one, we must know what the treasure is that he's referring to in that verse. And to know that, we must look to how Paul led into this section. So just back up just a little bit to those preceding verses. And so he's continuing this defense of uh, his apostleship, of his authority, of, of the church. And uh, he's talking about there in chapter 3, how we are ministers of a new covenant. And he moves into, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, that is God who has given him this ministry, that is not anything that he's done or established on his own. He says, we do not lose heart. This is chapter 4, verse 1. But we have renounced the disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then he goes on to say that even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And so they rather indulge in the gospel of self. And Paul goes on to say there in verses 5 and 6, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul wants the Corinthian church and all believers, for that matter, to know that the message he preaches is not done by doctoring his own testimony to carefully remove the suffering so that everyone would see Christ as more appealing Right? Because again, that's, that's what his opponents are saying. That this suffering, all, he's, he suffers too much to be someone who has true apostolic authority of the risen Christ. Right? And so he said, I'm not doctoring my own testimony or carefully crafting statements that will persuade. Rather, he says, but by the open statement of the truth, we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So, so Paul's defense of his own ministry and message is not what he accomplished, but rather the unvarnished truth. And so therefore, he says, if the gospel is veiled, it's not because of what we preach. The gospel is veiled to those who are blinded by the God of this world, living for the gospel of this world and filling their bellies with the things of this world. And therefore, the only thing powerful enough to break through that darkness, as we see in verse 6, is the light 
of the gospel. And that leads us to that first point on your outline this morning. And we're going to get right to it. The light of the gospel gloriously displays the triumphant power of God. That's a wordy statement. So let me, let me unpack that a little bit. The light of the gospel gloriously displays the triumphant power of God. So before moving on and, and really digging into today's text, I want us to understand the radical nature of what Paul says in the lead up to today's text so that we have better understanding of what he says in today's text. So in, there in verses 5 and 6, in a culture obsessed, this is the culture of Paul, you're going to mistake it for our culture because it sounds just the same. In a culture obsessed with honor and status and self, Paul identifies himself and all the leaders of the church as servants. He does that there in verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He presents, he, he, he makes himself subservient to the church. He's saying that what I am doing, I am your servant. He willingly puts himself in that role in a world in which that would be unheard of to renounce your own status, your own achievements, your own glory and say that we are your servants. But then notice who does he present as the model for that service? Ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And that we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And so it's Jesus who is the model for this, this posture of servitude. For Paul to display the light of the gospel meant displaying the fragility of the flesh. And that's what exactly the same thing means for us. That to display the true light of the true gospel means displaying the fragility of the flesh. Thereby... Because when we show and expose how vulnerable and broken we are in our sinfulness, the world therefore has no choice but to see who as powerful and almighty. Jesus. And that's the gospel. Thereby displaying the triumphant, triumphant power of God to bring us from death to life in the afflictions and resurrection of Christ. And that's the gospel, folks, that we were dead in the weakness and fragility of our flesh, wanting nothing to do with God. And in Christ, he shone the light of the gospel into our hearts, drawing us to himself, bringing us from death to life. And so with that in mind, now we read verse 7. But we have this treasure. So we have this treasure of the light of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what is this precious treasure that is kept in such a fragile earthen vessel? It's the light of the glory of God as displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, who are the earthen vessels that withhold this precious treasure? That's us. That's the exact emphasis here. That we have this treasure which has value beyond comparison. Value beyond comprehension. And yet rather than being stored in a place of, of top secret protection under armed guard, 
It's stored where? In fragile jars of clay. Clay jars, while obviously infinitely useful and widely used, especially in Paul's time, Corinth was known for its particular style of pottery. While they were useful, they must be cared for and handled gently, or else what? They shatter. But that is exactly the point, that the fragility of the vessel displays the power of the one who sustains it. And that brings it to the next point on your outline, that the triumphant power of God is gloriously displayed in human weakness. That in our weakness, as we come to know Christ through the gospel, He displays that power which He has to bring a life from death to life in Him. He displays in our weakness His strength and power. And this is a beautiful paradox that the surpassing power of God made known in the gospel would be displayed in such a frail, vain, fickle humanity. And not only that, but that very weakness becomes the perfect display for the power of the gospel. And this is God's design. That in our weakness, His power is made known to the world and to those around us. So how dare we question what God may be doing in our midst, in the midst of difficult situations? How dare we wonder on how God could possibly use a tragedy to gloriously display the beauty and the power of the gospel? In a world that is upside down because of sin, God operates in the paradox. And we see this throughout Scripture time and again, that that which would have this world think counterintuitively, God uses as the very thing to display His glory. So when we say, I don't get it, I don't see it, I don't understand it, and as long as we think like the world and in the ways of the world and by the reasoning of the world, we won't understand it. But when we think as God shows and reveals himself and makes himself known according to his word, we realize that he operates paradoxically to the thinking and the ways of this world. And the most effective way to display the power of the gospel is for us to be weak. So if you want to make the gospel known, it requires less of yourself and more of Christ. And that's the message of having this precious treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So how does that work? Well, he breaks it down there in the continuing verses. Pick back up in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way. So no room for error there. Like if you want to name the way that the church could have been afflicted, that the leaders of the church could have afflicted, He said, every way. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, we'll get to that verse 10, but let me break down a few things. So, in our afflictions... 
our crushing, our perplexities, our persecutions, our strikings, we are carrying in this earthly body the death of Jesus. That as we experience the sufferings of a broken world and experience the sufferings of sin, we are carrying in this earthly body the death of Jesus. To which we should say, hallelujah. What a glorious thought that every struggle and every bit of suffering, big and small, in my life is purposefully telling the testimony of Christ's afflictions on the cross. So watch this. Let's walk back through that. Verse 8. So we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, which means he sustains us in our afflictions, right? So no matter what that looks like, every way, right? But we're not crushed. Why? He sustains us. Next, perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. So he gives us hope. He sustains us in hope, a living hope, as we'll see here in a few weeks. Verse 9, persecuted, but we're not forsaken. So he is with us always. This is Jesus' promise there at the end of the Great Commission that, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so though we are in the midst of persecution, though we be in the midst of persecution, we are not forsaken because we are in the very place which Christ himself went to, to die for us. So in our sufferings, in our afflictions, our perplexities, our persecutions, we are displaying the gospel. You continue the last one there, struck down but not destroyed. So though we may be struck down, we live with eternity in clear view. And he protects us. So that even if that striking down doesn't kill us, we will eventually know that we will see him. But if that striking down does take our life, we're not destroyed, for we live with eternity in view. It brings us to the next point there on your outline, that in Christ we are sustained in the weakness of our flesh. So Christ is the one who sustains us. He protects us. He gives us hope. He is always with us. And even to the end of the age, he is the one that guides us in the weakness of our flesh. So as we come to him, he uses that weakness to display his glory majestically. What does that mean? What does that mean? How could he sustain us in the weakness of our flesh? Because it kind of almost sounds like I'm saying that in being a Christian, we must suffer. That we must experience heartache. That we must experience difficulties, crushing. That we must experience afflictions, perplexities, persecutions, being struck down. To which I say, no, I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm telling you. That's what the text is telling us. Right? Is that, yes, that is absolutely what you should expect. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, told us Himself. John chapter 15. You can turn there if you want to, or it'll be on the screen for you. But John chapter 15, Jesus tells the disciples this. This is in the midst of 
the famous verse that I am the vine, you are the branches, right? He is the true vine. The vine dresser is the father. But in verse 18, he says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. What Paul and Jesus are telling us is that suffering, afflictions, perplexities, and persecutions are not to just be expected in this world, but we must know that they are required for those who would submit to a life of following Christ. Now, to what level and what extreme and the context that that looks like is different. For some, it may be at the individual level. For some, a corporate level. For some, it may be intense and long-suffering. For others, it may seem like our suffering is insignificant in comparison with our brothers and sisters around the world. But what is so compelling is that all of it is that as we carry the death of Jesus in our flesh, the life of Jesus is being manifested. That's what he says there at the end of verse 10. Always carrying. So after he he lists all of these things, afflictions, perplexities, persecutions, struck down, and says how Christ sustains us in all of that. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that's what all those things are doing. As we struggle, as we toil, as we suffer in this life, we're carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that Anytime you see those types of phrases leading in, uh, in Scripture, know that that's, that's important. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then he goes on to uh, elaborate on that in the next couple of verses. Pick back up verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So again, if you thought that submitting to Christ meant that you can avoid any sort of suffering. Think again. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, there it is again, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So in other words, as we suffer, as we experience hardship, afflictions, perplexities, God is at work in those things, molding us into a living testimony of the gospel and bearing witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And this is why we can rejoice in our sufferings. This is why we can have hope and endurance and strength in the midst of suffering is knowing the next point there on your outline. The suffering we endure illustrates the light of the cross. So we are living testimonies to the cross of Christ, especially in our suffering, especially in our perplexities, 
in our afflictions, our hardships, we are illustrations of the light of the cross. So whatever afflictions and hardships we endure in this life are being masterfully used to display the light of the cross to those around us. Believers and non-believers alike. And here's what I mean by that. Our afflictions testify to the power of the gospel and embolden our brothers and sisters to endure. So when we experience afflictions, persecutions, hardships, and we bring those testimonies here to bear with one another in those things, then we are strengthening, emboldening, encouraging one another as we walk through those together. But they can also shine the light of the gospel into a heart that is still in the darkness of sin. So not only do our sufferings illustrate the light of the cross and, and encourage and embolden our brothers and sisters, but our sufferings also have the potential and the opportunity to shine the light. So as we talk about our sufferings with our unbelieving friends, as we openly and authentically testify to what we're walking through, we are painting a clear picture of the cross, which is why things like the prosperity gospel so distort the realities of what it means to follow Christ. Because when you eliminate the suffering, you eliminate the cross. The suffering we endure illustrates the light of the cross. And I want us to see three implications of this truth. And you'll see three subpoints there on your outline. I want us to see three implications of the truth that our suffering illustrates the light of the cross. First, first, first implication. Our suffering is totally purposeful, and for that we rejoice. I'll ask you, you can, you can turn, or again, it'll be on the screen behind you, but uh, Hebrews, we see this. The author of Hebrews testifies to this reality in Hebrews chapter 12, where he uses that famous analogy of those who have gone before us in the faith, coming right off, off of that famous chapter, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Therefore, Chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking where? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that, there it is again, you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So take note in Scripture, uh, again, of the paradoxical relationship between Christians, Christian suffering, and Christian joy. 
We have this paradoxical relationship of Christian suffering and Christian joy. And where do we see that paradoxical relationship displayed and modeled for us? We see that in Christ. There is an ever-intersecting line there that the world and its false wisdom cannot make sense of. Why would you relish and live and, and find joy and endurance and hope and strength in the midst of suffering? That doesn't make sense to the world. But in Christ, the weakness of our flesh is purposefully used. Through the sustained suffering of, sufferings of our flesh, God is continually producing testimonies of Christ's sufferings. So be sustained in that hope, friends. And let that bolster us as his church to suffer well and to suffer with joy. The next implication of being an illustration of the light of the cross. How we deal with suffering is intended to strengthen the church. How we deal with suffering is intently purposed by God to strengthen his church. This can happen in multiple ways, but there's a few that particularly stick out to me. The first may be more obvious, that through the endurance of the saints, right, God is purifying and hardening and sharpening our faith. So he's just, he's, he's purifying our faith as gold is refined, silver is refined, that in our sufferings, he's using that to grow us, to sharpen us. That one's more obvious. The second is this, that through the suffering of the church, Many who have not truly believed fall away. And so God uses suffering to strengthen his church by revealing those who have not truly believed. The third is that the suffering of the church is a distinguishing characteristic. Therefore, those who preach an adverse gospel can be more readily identified. So beware Anyone that preaches, any organization that preaches that suffering is not necessary, useful, and purposed by God. We see this. The author of Hebrews, again, brings this up. But you can go back there to Hebrews chapter 13, just one chapter later. So I want us to see, not only we see it there, but where do we see that reality in Scripture? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. So here he's talking about being sacrifices, being sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And he says, the author of Hebrews says this, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So just as you saw your leaders suffer, just as you saw Peter crucified on an upside-down cross, just as you saw each of the apostles have to suffer a gruesome death, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. 
we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So there he's saying the difference between Christians and Jews here. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Don't miss this next part, church. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So what are the implications of that? Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So just as Christ suffered, so his church suffers and is strengthened by it. Paul continues to elaborate back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, picking back up in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So take note there that spirit, you see there at the beginning of verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, uh, take note there that it's not capitalized, right? So Paul is more here referencing the shared mindset of believers, so he then identifies that with Psalm 116, which he quotes from, we believe, which uh, says there, I believed and so I spoke, right? And then he identifies with that and says, we believe and so also we speak. And then he roots all of this confidence and hope in what? The resurrection of Christ. So that as he suffers more and more and more, then more and more and more people come to know the gospel, spilling over into thanksgiving and glorifying God. So he, knowing that, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. And then we see that beginning in verse 15. Ver, we see that word for, right? So this is, again, a, a produce, right? Uh, or a reason. For, it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase what? So as our suffering increases, that we cling to the resurrection, and as that happens, it increases what? Our thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so, that's what you see is the next implication of being illustrations of the cross there, the third and final one. God is glorified in the suffering of our flesh. So, like, how could that, how could that be? That God received glory, admonition, worship, 
honor, do His name through our suffering. And again, we've been pointed to where we should look for this model and for this example, for this truth, time and time again in all these different scriptures. We look to the cross. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. This is, of course, after Paul's famous explanation of everything that he has lost on sake of knowing Christ. He's lost his status, his power, his authority in the eyes of the world, that is. In verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We, church, are sanctified through suffering and affliction. And as in those moments we are pushed deeper into God's grace, deeper into reliance upon God for strength and endurance, and we're forced to cling even tighter to the cross and the resurrection of Christ, Meaning there is no suffering in this life that can cause Christ's own to lose heart. And that's what Paul elaborates as you pick back up, back in 2 Corinthians, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, so though we may continue to receive beatings, persecutions, afflictions, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, so again, that's the wasting away of the self. So we, we see that, we think about that, that's a, gosh, that sounds terrible, right? He says, that's a light momentary affliction. And what is that light momentary affliction doing? Verse 17. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So whatever we experience, suffering we experience now, that will be multiplied in the life that is to come through what Christ has accomplished for us. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, means they're moving, they're fleeting, they're gone, like that. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's the final point there on your outline. In Christ, our momentary suffering is producing an eternal weight of glory. Now, 
And you just try to wrap your mind around that saying, the weight of glory. So we have this precious treasure beyond comparison and comprehension in these fragile clay jars. And so as these clay jars are susceptible to fracturing, breaking, showing the weakness of the jar, that only shows the preciousness of the treasure all the more and the power of the treasure all the more to sustain the jar. And so as that jar sees afflictions, persecutions, perplexities, strikings, and that light momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. In Christ, we can live with eternity in view. Therefore, whatever difficulty we endure here in this life is momentary and fleeting. In addition to that, it is producing something of eternal worth within us as it only serves God's purpose to strengthen His church, spread the gospel, and embolden our faith. Lastly, as we close, I want to turn you for this truth to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah, as we looked at back at Advent season, filled with prophecies of Christ. But here in the Easter season, this is one of the more pointed, especially for this Sunday as we focus on the sufferings of Christ in paying the price of sin on our behalf. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So this is to show the willingness of Christ, or as Christ is to come, obviously, after this prophecy. But this is showing the willingness that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. We experience oppression and affliction but where do we look for our model for how to respond to that? Where do we look for how God could be at work in that? We look to Him. And He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. And you continue. That oppression is continued to be expanded, expounded upon by Isaiah here. Skip down to verse 10. Because this also shows just how God is glorified and purposing and using and willing for our sufferings to produce the strengthening and the, the, the faith and the hope of his church. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So understand that Judas is not successful unless it's the Lord's will. The Roman government is not successful unless it's the Lord's will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see 
his offspring. So here we see the resurrection prophesied as well. So his soul makes the offering for guilt. He's been crushed. He's been put to death. But yet he's still going to see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Church, we rejoice in suffering. We look to suffering not as punishment, but as evidence of our faith in a world that lives paradoxically to the gospel. We live paradoxically to the world because that is exactly how God operates. And we look no further than the cross of Christ for that model and that example. Let's pray. We love you. Lord, as we consider what is very just weighty subject, alone to consider the sufferings of Christ on our behalf by your will, but then also to consider how in our sufferings we are illustrating those same principles, those same truths, those same realities to the world around us. And that in that you are working providentially to strengthen your church, to spread your glory and make your gospel known. Help us to rest in that. As we look forward to Easter, prepare our hearts with these realities which make celebrating the resurrection all the more sweeter. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.